Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for being a gracious and loving Father, for being a forgiving God who loves us and cherishes us. Father, we thank you for being uh, a gracious God who desires relationship with us, who yearns to interact with us day in and day out. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that you will move mightily and powerfully in our midst, and that we will recognize the weight of your glory in our lives and in the lives of those that we interact with, Father. Father, I pray that you speak boldly into our hearts and our lives today and that you use me as a vessel for you, letting only that of which you have ordained uh, of me be involved in this today. Father, speak into our hearts and our lives and touch us. Let us leave this place changed. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. All right, so this week is the first week of a series of Haftorah Parshot from the uh, book of Isaiah. And we call this, it's seven weeks total, beginning with this week. We call this the uh, seven weeks of consolation. Uh, it immediately follows, as we've talked some in the, the previous weeks leading up to this, it immediately follows Tishbaav. Uh, Tishbaav is the ninth of Av. It's the day historically when both temples were destroyed. It's the day when a ton of calamities and atrocities against the Jewish people in Israel have occurred over the history of Israel. Um, and there's also a lot of other things that, that connect with it. But it's exactly seven weeks before Rosh Hashanah. So we have seven weeks of the messages of Isaiah, the messages of consolation, and then the next week rolls right into uh, preparation for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Tzuru, the Feast of Trumpets. And so this is a time period where in Judaism, we're contemplating the destruction of the temple and the causality of that, which was our sin, our willingness to walk away from the Lord, uh, and its connectivity to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the 10 days of awe, this time period of repentance and restoration uh, with the Lord. And so as a Messianic Jewish community, we are going to spend the next several weeks really focusing on this idea of repentance, of uh, finding freedom, and so on. Because I want to, before we dive into the scripture, I want to lay out kind of a, a timeline, if you would, for why Tishbab and the seven messages of Isaiah leading Rosh Hashanah are so important. As we've talked some about it, I think we may have talked about it on uh, Tuesday night or possibly some last Shabbat. Uh, as we look at this time period, we realize there are all these atrocities that have occurred on Tishbab. But there's one thing that's rarely ever mentioned uh, and never mentioned outside of Messianic Judaism, but rarely ever mentioned uh, in, in general with its connection to Tishbab. And that is the fact that we can pinpoint based on Scripture that Yeshua was immersed by Yochanan HaMabil, was, was immersed by John the Immerser, John the Baptist. I don't know why he wasn't John the Methodist or the Episcopalian or whatever, but no, uh, by, he was immersed by Yochanan HaMabil, John the Immerser, on Tishbaab, which is the same day that the temples were destroyed. It's also, John just got that one. It's the same day that the temples were destroyed. It's also the same day that uh, as we look at 
the history of Israel is the same day that the ten spies came back across the Jordan with an evil report about the promised land and led Israel astray. Instead of them taking the land, they held fast in the wilderness and spent 40 years in the wilderness wasting away that first generation. So we look at scripture and we see that Yeshua was immersed on the same day that the spies crossed with an evil report, the same day the temples were destroyed because of Israel's mistakes, the same day that all of these atrocities and calamities have occurred to Israel. Uh, and we've got to wonder why. There must have been a reason. And to give you just a quick breakdown of how we know that it was this day, or, or rather likely this day, I believe it was absolutely this day, uh, a breakdown of how we know this is because we can look at things like, for instance, the three responses that Yeshua gives to Hasetan, to the adversary in the wilderness. Uh, all three of those responses come from the Torah parshot during this period of time. The second two come from this week's parsha. And the first one comes from next week's Parsha. So when the enemy tempts him in the wilderness, each of the responses he gives the enemy comes from the Torah Parsha during this period of time. And our Torah cycle was an established for roughly, establishment for roughly 500 years before Yeshua walked on earth in human form. So it's not like they went, oh, you know what? Yeshua was uh, immersed on that day. Let's build a Torah portion around that so it all works out. It was already pre-ordained uh, uh, to work out in such a fashion so that we can see the way God works. Um, and then as we see everything going on, we see that, uh, that Yeshua was immersed on Tisha B'Av and his, he goes into the wilderness immediately following on the same day, is tempted by the enemy for 40 days. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, which is where Israel spent 40 years. He spent 40 days redeeming the 40 years, one day for each year that Israel wasted in the wilderness because of their lack of faith and trust in Adonai. And one day in the wilderness for each of the days that the spies spent in the land that caused Israel to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And then when he comes back, he crosses the Jordan again. He goes back to Israel. He goes back to Nazareth, his home uh, community. And he goes to his home synagogue. And they call him up because he's been gone for seven weeks. He's been gone for uh, almost a month and a half, a little over a month and a half now from synagogue. He comes back and they call him up to the Bema as an aliot, as one to, to come up to read from the scriptures. They have him come up and read from the Haftorah. They open up the scroll and guess what passage it is? It's the Haftorah from the week of the seven messages that comes just after the 40th day after Tishbav. And he stands up to proclaim exactly what his ministry was, which is, I have come to bring freedom to the captive. That's a powerful statement, and we're going to focus on that identity of who Messiah was in the first coming, the freedom from the captivity concept as we move through these seven weeks. But I want you to understand something. Yeshua, often people think Yeshua's ministry began sometime after that moment. Sometime after he read that passage, because it's shortly thereafter we start to see the signs, wonders, and teachings, and so on of Yeshua. But I want to, uh, to propose to you that Yeshua's ministry actually began in the Jordan River when Yochanan Hamad Bill, when John the Immerser immersed him. Because immediately following the immersion is when we see the encounter with the Ruach and the Father's voice and so on. He crosses the river and goes into the wilderness and begins the first work of ministry, which is ultimately the very definition of his entire first coming ministry, which is redemption and restoration. So he spends 40 days redeeming the mistakes of Israel in the wilderness. I don't know about you guys, but as somebody who has messed up over and over and over and over exponentially in my life, I'm really thankful that we serve a God who redeems and who, in sending Mashiach and sending his Messiah to redeem our sins, his first act of ministry was redemption. And on a specific point in the calendar of God's prophetic realities, 
I mean, that's just awesome. You can't, you can't beat that. And then we roll right into the fall feasts with the idea of repentance and restoration and returning to the Lord uh, and Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the connection to end-time realities and prophecy in those three feasts. Uh, I mean, it's just an awesome time period to pay attention to. But I say all of that, and we're going to dig more into this over the course of the next seven weeks. I say all that to set us up for a couple of things today. First and foremost, I want to ask you to open your scriptures up to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You'll all be very familiar with this as soon as you open up there. Many of you are already quoting it in your head just because I gave the verse reference. Um, But I want to set us up for a couple of things here as we look at this specific time period and why this period of time is so important in preparation for the uh, High Holy Days. Deuteronomy 6, 4, beginning says, Hear, O Israel, in Hebrew, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today are to be on your heart. You are to teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign upon your hand and let them be frontless between your eyes and write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. First off, the word Shema in Hebrew. It doesn't mean listen as though, you know, the TV is playing and you just pay attention to what's being said or the, the radio's on and you pay attention or, you know, the ball game's going and you pay attention, but it's a responsive listening. Shema means hear and obey. So when the Lord says, Shema Yisrael, he's saying, Israel, listen to me and respond. Listen to me and get in line. Listen to me and act upon what I am saying to you. So he says, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This parallels to the Ten Commandments, which are repeated in this Parsha. Uh, it parallels to the Ten Commandments where he says, you would have no other God before me, right? And over and over again, we see this concept of who he is. Verse 5, love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I want to propose to you, this is absolutely impossible to honor if we are not fully redeemed in the blood of Messiah. If we are not set free from captivity in the hands of the enemy, if the bondage and chains in our lives that are holding us back are not released, this is not capable to be fully enacted in our lives because we're always distracted. Somebody who is likely, I was never diagnosed, but my wife would swear up and down, there's no doubt about it. Somebody who is likely, uh, likely has attention issues, uh, I'm not going to say deficit because I didn't have any in the first place to be missing any. Uh, but, but for somebody who has attention issues, um, I can tell you firsthand, there, when, when your brain is scattered on, uh, you know, anybody that's had a conversation with me for three seconds knows that I can jump from whatever you ask me to something 25 years from now without thinking about it. Uh, I, I have no idea why, but my brain's all over the place. And so when we're talking about love the Lord our God with all our heart, with our soul, with all our strength, we have to be wholly devoted and dedicated to him to do that. But if our spiritual life is ADD, if our spiritual life is chasing after this or that or this thing of the world or that thing of the world, we cannot be fully and wholly devoted to the Lord. And I don't mean holy H-O-L-Y, I mean holy W-H-O-L-Y. All right, holy, giving him our all. We can't do that. Now, I want to dig into the Hebrew of this verse real quick, all right? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The word there is levavcha, la, uh, lev, which is heart, all right? I believe each of these three words that he says, he picks out three very distinct things for us to love him with, right? Uh, I, I believe each of these has a very distinct spiritual meaning in the depth of the understanding of the passage. So he says to love him with our levavcha, with our heart, our lev. What is it the lev controls? 
The heart controls your blood flow, right? What is it the scripture tells us about our blood? It's our life force, right? It says don't eat the blood of an animal because it's his life force. If innocent blood is spilled, somebody has to pay the consequence. It was his life force. The scripture tells us that the blood is our life force. The heart is what controls the flow of our life force. I don't think he's just talking, look, this hunk of muscle in your chest. I want you to love me with it because it's got a job already. How's it going to love something? It's not the esoteric, philosophical love. You know, I love you with all my heart, like we say to our spouse or our children. He wants us to love him with our very life force itself. All right? And then he goes on to say, our nafshecha, your, your soul. Well, nefesh is the, the word there. Nefesh doesn't literally mean soul. We use it for soul. But you know what nefesh literally means? Throat. What is it your throat controls? Your breathing, right? Throat controls your breathing. If you don't believe me, swallow something halfway and try and breathe. It's not going to work. Your throat controls your breathing. And our breath is from who? From God, right? So he says, I want you to, to love me with your heart, which controls your life force. I want you to love me with your soul, which nefesh, your throat, which controls the very breath that keeps you alive. And he says, I want you to love me with your meldecha, which we often translate to strength or might or power. But the word he, in Hebrew, me'od, do you know what me'od means? It's fun. I love this one. Me'od means more. As in, can I have some more water, please? It means more. So the Lord wants us to love him with our life force, with our very breath itself, and with everything else that we are. Not just our strength, not our might, but everything. Your more. Love me with your heart, your soul, and your more. Your everything. All right? And then he goes on in, in numerous places in this, this parsha, including this passage. He tells us that the reason we're to honor and obey the things found in his word is not for our sake. and It's not for his sake. You know what the Torah tells us over and over again? It's for the sake of our children, the generation that follows us. Numerous places just in this Parsha alone, he says, when your children ask, you're to explain. Or when your children see, you're to explain. He says here, teach it to your children from generation to generation. This idea over and over again, you were to teach them diligently to your children and speak of them in your house and on the way. You're supposed to constantly be focused on his word, his commandments, and we're to love him with everything that we are. That's a powerful reality, but the truth of the matter is, is we cannot truly give him all of our love, all of our attention, all of our devotion, all of our worship, all of anything in our life if we are not set free from captivity. And I keep saying this because this is what the ministry of Yeshua was all about. Right? He hung on the cross. He was put on the stake and died for our sins that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. Right? So that we could be washed clean and freed from the bondage of sin. The power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the power of the Holy Spirit was given to us so that we could be set free from the enemy's grip and reign in our lives and so that we could bring freedom to others so that they can be set free from the enemy's reign and control in their life. As we look through this Parsha, we see a number of things that, that pop out that are of, of great value, that are so drastically important. First and foremost, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse uh, 23 is where it begins. It says, Watch yourselves so that you do not forget the covenant of Adonai your God, which cut, he cut with you and made for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything uh, which he cut with you and do not make for yourselves 
a graven image of, in the form of anything that Adonai your God has forbidden you. For Adonai your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, I need to reread that verse because I missed a word. So that you do not forget the covenant of Adonai which he cut with you and make yourselves a graven image in form of anything. Uh, now, the part that's important, first off, is the covenant the Lord's made with us in 24. For Adonai your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What was the covenant that was made with us? I'm going to give you a hint here because I'm directing you to something specific. The covenant was cut with us was renewed through the covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 says that the new covenant is going to be different than the previous and that it's not written on stone, but instead it's written on our heart, right? We go back to Exodus. What is it the Lord said he wants to do to Israel? Circumcise the heart. Over and over again throughout the Torah, we read about the image of the circumcision of the heart. Breaking news alert, Paul wasn't the first one to mention that. Moses talked about it over and over again. The Lord, from the very foundations of this covenant with Israel, wanted our hearts to be circumcised so that we could be walking wholly devoted to him in covenant relationship with him. So as we flow through this partial, we realize that the covenant is vitally important. And then finally, verse 24, for Adonai, your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In Hebrew, El Kanan, the God of jealousy or a jealous God. He is jealous for us. See, we should have a zeal for him, which flows from jealousy, but he has jealousy for us because he doesn't want to see us turning to this way or that way. He tells us over and over again not to look to the nations around us and want what they have, not to look at the people around us and want their gods or their lifestyle or the things of the world around us, but instead to only look at him and want what he has for us. He says he is an all-consuming fire. So when we look at the fact that he wants us to love him with all of our heart, our life force, with all of our, our soul, our breath itself, with all of our everything else, our strength, our might, our power, everything that we are. And then we look at the fact that he's an all-consuming fire. When the presence of the Lord is consuming in our life, it's an all-consuming fire that should absorb everything. All of our attention should be given to him. All of our desires should be given to him. All of our practice and lifestyle and, and uh, everything that we do interacting with other people should be led by him. Everything should flow in line with his will. And if it doesn't, we need to realign our life. We need to re-correct or re-calculate uh, 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 the way that we're doing things and get back on track with the Lord so that we can walk faithfully in righteousness with him. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 is the first response that he gives, that Yeshua gives to the enemy. Uh, I'm sorry, the second response Yeshua gives to the enemy in, in Matthew 4. Um, he says, you are not to test Adonai your God as you tested him at Massah. Uh, I'm sorry, it's the third Verse 13, I jumped ahead of myself. Verse 13 is the second. You must fear Adonai your God and serve him and swear by him the way it's worded in from the Greek in the Brech is You are to, uh, um, let me go to Matthew 4. I'll be able to tell you easy that way because quoting it off the top of my head is just not working. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 4 of Matthew says, You shall not put Adonai your God to the test. And then verse uh, 
uh, 10 says, go away, Satan. Uh, I'm sorry, verse yeah, verse 10, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship, or you shall worship Adonai your God, and him only shall you serve. And as we go back to, uh, to this Parsha in Deuteronomy 6, verse uh, 13 and 10, uh, 13 and 16, you must fear Adonai your God and serve him, swear by his name. In other words, you're not swear by anybody else but him. And verse 16, you are not to test Adonai your God uh, as you tested him at Massah. Our lives, especially as believers, we find ourselves over and over again as believers in situations where the enemy has somehow managed to derail or, or sidetrack us or take us down some alternative path to what the Lord has for us. And we find ourselves making decisions that put us in harm's way, both spiritually and physically. We find ourselves making decisions that uh, in reality go against the very nature of a child of God of one who is grafted and adopted into righteousness, right? And as we look at Yeshua, we should be looking at Yeshua in the wilderness and the temptation that he experienced against the enemy and recognize that this is an example for us because Yeshua tells us later on in the Gospels that when the Ruach comes, when the Comforter comes, we'd be able to do even greater things than he did, right? He withstood the temptation of the enemy three times. We should be able to withstand it over and over and over again. But unfortunately, we don't. It's not that we can't, it's that we don't. And the reason we don't is because we don't walk in the power and the authority that is granted to us. And the reason we don't walk in the power and authority that is granted to us is because far too often, we are still held back by the chains of the enemy. By things that we haven't overcome yet through the blood atonement of Messiah. By things we haven't overcome yet by the blood of the Lamb in deliverance and uh, in restoration and redemption. Uh, in, in the reality that Messiah wants to set the captive in our lives free. How many times do we find ourselves uh, in a position where we are afraid to raise our hands and worship because in our head we're thinking, what's other people going to think? Or we have this urge to go dance, but we're afraid to go dance because what, we're, what will other people think? Or we have this urge, there's this word that the Lord's put on our heart that we, we want to share and, and we just don't come to, to the rabbi or the leadership to say, the Lord's put this word on my heart and I want to share it because what will people think? How often is it that we find ourselves in a position where, on the contrary, we're afraid to live out our faith before all men because we're worried about what people will think, right? Well, what happens if, if uh, I proudly boast the name of Messiah? What happens if I share the truth of his salvation, if I preach the Besorah, the gospel, the good news with somebody? What will they think or what will other people think or, or will somebody think I'm weird? What happens if I go to pray for somebody because they're, I'm in the grocery store and they tell me that they're having this hard time and, and, and they're struggling and this is going on and that's going on, but we're out in public and if I pray for them here, people are going to look at me and they're going to think I'm weird or we're going to... But the reality is, is if we truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, with our soul, with all our strength, with our life force, our breath and everything else that we are, we aren't going to be worried about what other people think because the only one we should be worried about what they think is the Lord. And I can tell you right now, there's 66 books here that tell us a ton of information about what the Lord thinks when we don't do what he asks of us. Look at Israel, this time period that we're in right now, the destruction of both temples because we refuse to walk faithfully in righteousness and relationship with the Lord. Because we chose to worship the idols of the people around us. Because we chose to have a king over us so that we could be like all the nations around us. As opposed to recognizing that the Lord God of Israel is our king and our only king and the king of kings. Because we refuse to give him our all. 
we give the enemy grounds in our lives. We give him opportunities to, to destroy us, to hold us back, to try and tear us down. The beauty of the messages of consolation out of Isaiah, it goes from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60. We're going to read almost all of Isaiah 40 through 60 over the next several weeks. And you're even going to notice as we move through that there is a very specific passage of Isaiah that's actually hacked out of the seven messages of consolation personally. Uh, and I hope you agree with me. Personally, I feel it's the most important passage in the whole section. And that's Isaiah 52 through 54, 12, roughly, this, servant, this uh, suffering servant passage. Isaiah 53 concept of the suffering servant it speaks specifically of Messiah. It's the forbidden passage in Judaism. If you're a religious Jew, you're not allowed to read Isaiah 53 without a rabbi there to tell you what it really means because you might accidentally find out what it really means. And if you read it, it specifically speaks verbatim of Messiah's death. Verbatim. It points us directly to Yeshua. And so as we read through these seven messages, and I encourage you over the next few weeks to take the time to read the Torah Parsha. Take the time to read the Haftorah of these seven uh, Parshot of Isaiah. Take the time to dig through and see what the Lord is saying because each of these messages, most of Isaiah is a promise of destruction because of our sins. But each promise of destruction comes with a promise of restoration and renewal if we simply repent. These passages from Isaiah 40 through 60 are exactly that, but also so much more because it points us to the realities of the work of Messiah, which is the only way we truly can be perfectly redeemed for the Lord. So Isaiah 40 verse 1, the beginning of the Haftar this week says, Comfort, comfort my people. Nachamu, nachamu ami. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. For she has received from Adonai's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Adonai, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. By the way, very passage spoken about Yochanan Hamabil. This is what it tells us he came to, to do and what he was saying in preparation of Yeshua. Verse 4, every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground will be plain and the rugged terrain will be a plain, the rugged terrain smooth. The glory of Adonai will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. It's not often that I'm willing to take a prophecy specifically spoken over the people of Israel and say that this can distinctly relate spiritually to the rest of us also, to all of the world. Uh, but this is one of those prophecies. Verse 5 says, The glory of Adonai will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. Verse 2, Speak kindly to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. And we're going to prove this in the Baruch HaDashah in just a moment. But I want you to understand these are words of promise for our lives. Not only of Israel and the restoration of the nation of Israel and the restoration of the theocracy of Israel, which is something that will occur when the Messiah returns and he rules as uh, king over all of Israel and all the world. But this is speaking for our own lives here and now as well. Because the reality is that Yeshua's sacrifice has provided a means that all of the world, all flesh see and can see the glory of Adonai revealed before them. It is the only way in which the iniquity of our sins can be removed. And most importantly, the only way that our warfare can be brought to an end. And I want you to understand, as believers, uh, uh, we often are afraid to talk about spiritual warfare. 
Uh, because if we talk about it, we have to admit it's real. And if we have to admit it's real, we have to believe it's real. And if we believe it's real, then that means that there really is that superhero comic book good versus evil concept and that it can be a rough game. But I want you to know that the enemy really does want to crap on your parade. All right? He wants to ruin everything in your life because if he can ruin everything in your life, he can get you to curse God. Because as a believer, you know, all of your blessings come from the Lord, right? And so if he can get you to, to if he can ruin everything in your life, he can get you to curse God. And that's what he wants to do. And we can see with Job that it's, it's absolutely possible to be able to endure what the enemy throws our way and never curse God, never walk away from him. We can see with Yeshua that it's absolutely possible that when the enemy comes and, and throws temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation our way, that it is absolutely possible to stand up against that temptation and to overcome that temptation. But it requires us being truly devoted to the Lord, which requires us finding freedom from captivity to the enemy. Not just freedom from sin and the ability to sin and the curses of sin, but freedom from the bondage of the enemy and its entirety, which isn't specifically and only linked to sin. These are things that can be generational curses. We read in the, the Torah how the sins of the fathers will be a perpetual issue for generations to come, even to the third and fourth generation. And something I try to get people to understand is it doesn't stop with you. If you sin and that uh, to the third and fourth generation concept flows, you know what? That's a generational curse now on the generations that follow you for the third and fourth. But if your children then do it, it's their third and fourth. And if their children do it, it's their third and fourth. And if their children do it, it's their third. And it's a perpetual problem that's going to continue to roll and continue to build and continue to wreck more lives unless we decide here and now that we are willing to allow the Lord to have complete and total control of our lives and free us from the captivity of the enemy. We don't think about it, but addictions, addictions are spiritual problems, all right? I don't care if it's a drug addiction, an alcohol addiction. I don't care if it's a porn addiction. I don't care what it is. Addictions are spiritual battles. In the modern world, because the, the scientific world today doesn't want to admit that there's a God that exists, doesn't want to admit that there's spirituality, that, that there's a spiritual warfare that happens because it doesn't want to admit that there are things we can't possibly begin to explain, the science world goes, no, no, addictions are really a, they're a brain thing. It's a, a malfunction. It's a chemical imbalance. It's a this or it's a that. But the reality is, is the root problem of addiction is almost always spiritual. And the reason why we can't see it, that it is in non-believers because they haven't found freedom in Messiah yet to be able to understand where the root of those problems are. We have to dig into the roots, and that's what Messiah wants to do. He wants to free us from the control of the enemy in our lives. That's what this whole passage, uh, this whole time uh, uh, period here from Tishbab to, to Rosh Hashanah is all about, is showing us the redemptive work of Messiah and the fact that we can stand strong and stand against the work of the enemy no matter what if we're just willing to find freedom in Messiah. And a lot of times it's more than us just being able to proclaim freedom in our own lives. A lot of times it's the necessity for others to go to bat for us on our behalf in intercession and deliverance ministry with us. Uh, 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 says, and this is in connection to Isaiah where he talks about the whole world will see the glory of God. Uh, same prophecy is to be fulfilled when Messiah comes, that through Messiah all the nations will come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And guess what? It's exactly what happened. Now, for the most part, the body of Messiah came to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and cast away the people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, but and their descendants, but the reality is, is they came to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They fulfilled or showed the fulfillment of Yeshua's Messiah. 
Timothy, 1 Timothy verse 4 says, He desires all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, a human, Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time. Gave himself as a ransom for what? To buy our freedom. Not just from death, but from the grip of the enemy himself. The Lord wants you to find freedom. He wants you to walk in freedom. He wants you to be the example of freedom for everyone you come into contact with. He wants to change our lives. And look, just because we're willing to repeat a few words after somebody and say that we're saved, just because we're willing to, to fall on our face before the Lord, just because we're willing to get dunked in, a, in some water, that doesn't mean that we've truly found freedom. And, and I hate to break it to you, but it doesn't mean that we were truly transformed. Because there's a lifestyle that follows that transformation. And the reality is, is if we are truly believers, there are distinct choices in life we have to make. Because our lives are no longer ours. They are bought for his service. We are freed from the enemy. That doesn't mean we're no longer slaves. It just means we're no longer slaves to the enemy. We're now slaves to God. And we have a higher calling. And our calling is to impact the world around us. But if the world hears our words professing godliness, but sees our lives professing worldliness... They're never going to see God in us. And if our lives are professing worldliness while our mouths are professing godliness, then our hearts are not loving the Lord the way we're supposed to. And our soul is not loving the Lord the way we're supposed to. And our strength or everything else is not loving the Lord the way we're supposed to. The only way we can truly fulfill and live out in practice and lifestyle the words of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema and the Behafta, is if we are walking in freedom that can only be found in Messiah Yeshua. He came to set the captive free. He came to redeem the mistakes of your life. And if he can redeem the mistakes of Israel, as many as they made over and over and over again, if he can redeem the mistakes of, of Peter and Paul, if he can redeem the mistakes of any of the disciples, if he can redeem the mistakes of any of the fathers of the faith since then, there's no doubt that he can redeem the faith in yours and my uh, redeem the mistakes in yours and my life. No doubt at all. I'm willing to bet that none of you have ever done anything that's worse than Peter. Peter stood there while Yeshua was on trial and verbally renounced knowing him. Not once, not twice, three times. You know the only difference between Peter's mistake and Judah's mistake? Judas, sorry, I'll say it in English since people don't recognize that his name was really Judah. You know the difference between Peter and Judas's mistakes? Peter killed him, uh, Judah killed himself before he had a chance to repent, whereas Peter repented. I truly believe that Judah had, because it, it's not like, I mean, it was part of God's plan. Judah, Judah had to do what he did. There's no, no way around it. He had to do what he did. That doesn't mean God couldn't have redeemed him doesn't mean God couldn't have restored him. I truly believe, and I have to. In order to truly believe my sins are forgiven and can be forgiven, I have to believe that Judas's could have also been. We see remorse. He threw the money away. But instead of going back to Messiah, he took his own life before he had the chance. There's nothing we've ever done in our lives that's worse than what they've done. And I'm willing to bet there's nothing you've ever done in your life that's worse than anyone else in this room. It may be of a different caliber, maybe of a different flavor, that doesn't mean it's any worse. Because sin is sin. 
In God's eyes, it doesn't matter. You stole a piece of bubble gum or you slept around in your spouse, it doesn't matter. In God's eyes, sin is sin. And repentance is necessary and restoration is necessary and redemption is necessary and salvation is necessary and remission is necessary and deliverance is necessary. And as believers, we're afraid of that D word, deliverance. And we're often afraid of it because of things like the exorcism of, the, of Emily Rose or the movie The Exorcist or any number of things with dudes with white collars and holy water uh, casting demons out of people. Not that I'm alluding to anybody in particular or denominations out there at all. Um, but we're afraid of the concept of deliverance, but it's biblical. If you don't believe me, look at Yeshua's ministry. How many lives he set free. Look at the disciples' ministry and how many lives they set free. It is biblical and it's necessary and we all should go through it and find freedom in the Lord because the only way we can truly walk in faithfulness and what the Lord wants to do, and listen to me, I promise you, the Lord wants to do awesome things through you. He wants to use you to impact the entire world. He wants to use the light he has placed in you to spark a wildfire that cannot be extinguished. But it's not gonna happen as long as your attention is divided between the Lord and the world, between the Lord and the enemy. All right? We can be bought by the blood of the Lamb and still be fallen prey to the enemy. But the Lord wants to cut off the enemy's grip in our lives that we can walk faithfully in Him. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's awesome. I want that for my life and for all of your lives. I want that for every single believer I come into contact with. And more than that, I want it for every non-believer I come into contact with. We're put here to add to the numbers of the kingdom of Messiah, not to stagnate the numbers. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all men. You know what? True disciples find freedom in Messiah. If you want to be a true disciple, we must find freedom in Messiah. Amen? He says, when he returns to Nazareth, I have come to set the captive free. And that freedom is available for you. That freedom is available for you today. That freedom has been available for you since Yeshua hung on the stake. Since his death, burial, resurrection, and especially since the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. And it's time we walk in it. It's time we claim it. It's time, you know, like you want to talk about name it and claim it. That's the thing to do. Name it and claim it. Walk in the freedom the Lord has given you. Doesn't mean temptation is not going to come your way afterward. But it does mean you'll have the ability to, to avert it a lot more. When there's already an issue in our life, temptation just adds to it. And the issues that's already there make it easier to fall prey to that temptation. But when that temptation, when that, the issues have been redeemed and relieved and removed, that temptation can't be quite as tempting to us anymore. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we love you, we worship you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that, that you move mightily and powerfully in the lives that hear these words today. Father, that as we move through uh, this time period in preparation for uh, the high holy days, Lord, I pray that you reveal to us the reality of the depth of the salvation you have provided. That you re reveal to us the reality of the depth of your love for us. The reality of the depth of restoration that is available to us. Father, I love you. And I ask you to move mightily and powerfully in each and every person's life that is here today. That hears these words. Father, that we will experience the freedom that you have already granted us, that we just have to walk in. Father, we thank you for the blood atonement of Messiah and the work of redemption in our lives. B'Shem Yeshua.
amen.